0: Good morning, Bethel. Willie Nelson penned the words of the song, but it was Patsy Cline that made it famous. It went on to become the all-time most played song on jukeboxes across the United States. Now, if you don't know what a jukebox was, it's something from long ago. The The song was Crazy, released in 1961. Although the famous line of the psalm, I'm crazy for loving you, was more about a romantic interest than about politics, the word crazy aptly describes the times we are living in. What is going on in America? I don't even need to take the time to describe to you all the upsetting things that are happening in our culture at this time, from drag queens to wokeism. I think you'll agree with me that our country is in serious trouble. Well, this is Memorial Day. It's supposed to be more than grilling hamburgers and the start of the summer vacation period. Memorial Day is a time for us to remember those members of our armed forces who gave their lives in service and defense of our country. Truly, we are indebted to them. Here in my hand is a copy of an article that was just released. The title of it is, Another Memorial Day, Is America Still Worth Fighting For? Very sobering question. Does it strike any of you that some kind of a rebellion is going on? But it's much more than a national rebellion. More than anything else, we are experiencing some sort of a spiritual rebellion against God himself. Exactly one month ago in the city of Boston, a three-day gathering took place called SatanCon 2023, billed as the largest satanic gathering in history. It advertised that satanic rituals would be performed at the conference, and it all began with someone coming up on the stage and ripping apart a Bible. One of the present-day analyst of our culture, Michael Brown, has written in an article analyzing that particular conference. I'll read from just one little paragraph. As for the rejection of the Bible, this is just the latest instance of human beings say, we do not want the Lord and his anointed one, meaning Jesus, to rule over us. If you've never read Psalm 2, or if you need a refresher, take a moment to read it you'll find it more relevant than ever. Well, that brings us exactly what we want to talk about today, which is Psalm 2 and the universal rebellion against God. It seems that that simple innocuous song, I'm crazy for loving you, has morphed into something far more sinister, wickedly crazy against you, the you being God himself. Before we begin our study of Psalm 2 this morning, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we bow our heads before you. We're saddened in so many ways that we see a culture that is turning its back more and more against you. And yet, what are we to make of this, Lord? I pray you would refresh our hearts and minds this morning with the hope that we have in you and the future that we can look forward to. I pray, Lord, that we might get a better understanding of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has promised to come again. Pray that you would open up our minds to understand your word afresh. I pray in Jesus' name. Well, let me begin by just reading Psalm 2 that we're going to be studying this morning. You'll see the words on the screen in front of you. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, before we look at the details of the Psalm, I'd like to just kind of help put the whole thing in the context of the Psalter. The Psalter being the 150 Psalms that we find in the Old Testament. And believe it or not, this is more than just a loosely organized assortment of songs that were used in the temple worship of ancient Israel. There actually, there is a structure to this whole thing, and it's organized uh, very carefully into five books. Book one is Psalms 3 through 41. When you get to the end of 41, there's a doxology in verse 13. A doxology is a blessing for God, in this case, I'll read that particular one, "Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen." And that concludes book one. Book two is Psalms 42 to 72, with a doxology at the end of 72 in verses 18 and 19. I won't read it, but it'll be something of a similar sentiment as the one we saw in the previous one. Book 3 is Psalms 73 through 89, with a doxology coming at the end of 89 in verse 52. Book 4, Psalms 90 to 106, and a doxology at the end. And finally, there's Book 5, Psalms 107 to 145. And rather than a simple doxology at the end of that, there is a grand conclusion to the Psalter. All of Psalms 146 and 150 are this uh, enlarged doxology to conclude it all. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. The beginning of the Psalter, though, is Psalms 1 and 2, which forms something of a double introduction to the entire thing. So they work together. You may notice that Psalm 1 begins with the words, How blessed is a man who does not walk, you know, in the way of sinners... And at the end of Psalm 2, we have another blessing. How blessed is those who take refuge in him. So that kind of brackets the both Psalms 1 and 2. And both Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 include with a warning against those who may perish. So people have noticed sometimes they've even thought that these were originally one Psalm, but whether or not they are doesn't matter. They work together to form a double introduction. Psalm 1 is saying to you, if you want to enter into the life of blessedness, you need to take in the Word of God and obtain His wisdom. Delight in the law of the Lord. Psalm 2 is saying you need to go further than that. You need to be rightly related to God through His Son. And that's what we'll be looking at this morning. So, now we dive into the structure of Psalm 2. Psalm 2, there's 12 verses. It's very carefully arranged into four quadrants of three verses each. So verses 1 through 3, we see a rebellion of the nations to God's authority. Verses 4 through 6, we have a divine reaction to this rebellion that comes from heaven. Verses 7 through 9, the author gives us the Davidic covenant that assures us of God's son having ultimate victory. And finally, in verses 10 through 12, God's exhortation for those in rebellion, which kind of brings the first part and the last part all together. <clears throat> well, let's look now at the opening lines from verses 1 through 3: the rebellion against uh, of the nations against God's authority. He begins by saying, "Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain?" That word, to rage, actually means to conspire against. And you can see that brought out in the second line of that verse, the people's plot in vain. So there's this conspiracy that's going on among the nations of the earth. Verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So say that they've set themselves, meaning they've taken a united front, against the Lord and not only against the Lord but against his anointed now the word anointed is the Hebrew word Mashiach from which we get the word Messiah there are different ones that were anointed in the Old Testament Aaron the high priest was anointed when he entered into his priesthood kings like David would be anointed when they took up their their kingship I think here as we going into the psalm would be very obvious that it's the anointing of God's king that is in view now some will take the <clears throat> position that this is referring to David and was perhaps a psalm that was used at his coronation or perhaps that of another king in his line that may be true but my concern more this morning is about the ultimate fulfillment of this psalm which I'm going to contend is in Jesus Christ himself Well, what do these conspiring nations have to say? Verse 3 says, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away the cords from us. In other words, they don't want any divine restraints upon the way they think, the way they live. They want independence, they want freedom, they don't want to be under any type of guidance and any laws of the Lord. It's that casting away of all restraints. Now, these verses have a partial fulfillment in Acts chapter 4, verses 24 through 28. Shortly after the day of Pentecost, some of the apostles were preaching and they were arrested for preaching in the temple area, taken before the Sanhedrin and warned never to preach again uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, they were released. And as they went back and met with their fellow Christians, they all prayed together And it's interesting as we read uh, their prayers. And when they heard it, that is that gathering of Christians heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Notice that they attribute Psalm 2 to David, which we don't have written in Psalm 2, but it's true. They said, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So they quote these verses from Psalm 2. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So they see at least a partial fulfillment of those opening verses from Psalm 2 in the uh, crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. I say partial fulfillment because I think this uh, conspira- conspiring action against the Lord and against his anointing isn't limited to this. And I think, in fact, it will have a more ultimate fulfillment in the time right before the Lord returns. When uh, Satan brings one called the Antichrist uh, into being. But at least we see that it, it be, we see a fulfillment of it here. Now we go into verses four through six with how does the Lord respond to this conspiracy of the nations against him? It says, He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Sitting, the idea of sitting here refers to, not just being idle, but actually being on a kingly throne. So God is enthroned in heaven. He sits there as king over the universe. He laughs because it's it's such a ridiculous idea that humankind could ever conspire and succeed in that against the one who created everything, the heavens as well as the microscopic world. (laughs) It's ridiculous to think that they would be able to contest him and win. That laughter is only for a moment, though. It goes on to verse 5, says, Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Meaning, at some point, God in his wrath is going to take action against the rebellious nations of the world. And he says, verse 6, As for me... God says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now Zion in the Bible is a synonymous term for Jerusalem. But the question we need to ask, what is he referring to? Is he this Mount Zion, Jerusalem? Is this an earthly Mount Zion or is it a heavenly Mount Zion? Where exactly is this anointed king of the Lord uh, being set? Well, I'm going to suspend that question for a moment and I'll come back to it because I think as we go on to the following verses uh, we get that context that will help answer that question so just hold that there in the back of your minds for a moment and we'll come back to it let's go on now to look at verses 7 through 9 <clears throat> I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me you are my son today I have begotten you I want to pause there for a moment so He's a, a decree is brought into the conversation. So we say, well, what decree is this? Something that the Lord has decreed. Well, that's the question we need to ask ourselves. What decree is he referring to? This psalm, which was written by David, we're told in Acts 4.25, is very, it's important to understand that connection because God made a decree to David, which we call the Davidic Covenant. That covenant with David is recorded for us in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. The context for that is that David, at that time, there was no permanent temple. It was just the tabernacle, and David had the desire to build the temple for the Lord. But the Lord was not going to allow him to do that because David was a man of bloodshed. So a man of peace would build the temple. Of course, Solomon, his son, did so. But nevertheless, the Lord commended David for what he wanted to do. And he sent Nathan the prophet to him to promise him that there would be, from David, would come a line of kings and ultimately an eternal throne and kingdom. So we'll look at that now in 2 Samuel 7. Here's the words to David. When your days are fulfilled and you die down with your father's, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So an eternal throne and kingdom. He goes on to say in verse 14, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So it'll be this unique relationship between God and the king as a father would be to a son. Now, this would apply not only to David's son, Solomon, Solomon's son, and and so forth, but ultimately have fulfillment in Christ. That's why it says in the next line of verse 14, when he commits iniquity, as Solomon and others would do, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. In other words, God is promising that this Davidic covenant is always going to continue through the Davidic kings, the line of Davidic kings. Verse 16, In your house, your dynasty, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. So here's this decree, this covenant that God makes with the, the house of David that his sons will reign as king. But it will eventuate in an eternal throne and kingdom, and that, of course, will be Christ. Now, as we understand that Davidic covenant, we come back to Psalm 2 and realize that that's the decree that the the psalmist has in mind. I think one thing that kind of helps firm all this together is the quotation of this line and 2 Samuel both together by the author of hebrews at the opening of that glorious book so the as the book of hebrews in the new testament opens up the author is making a case that jesus is superior to the old covenant that he has brought in a new covenant and to the way he goes his logic for carrying out that argument is that it's first superior to the angels in the leaders of the Old Covenant, to the priests of the Old Covenant, and so forth. Chapter 1 is about the superiority of Christ to the angels. So he says in Hebrews 1.5, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Well, what the author of Hebrews is doing, he's quoting from Psalm 2.7, and then the words from the Davidic Covenant in 2 Samuel 7, 14, putting these together to show that this is all fulfilled in Christ. So I think now as we come back to Psalm 2, you'll see that we're on the right track as we connect the words of the decree that's being mentioned in Psalm 2, verse 7, with this Davidic Covenant. All right, so I'm going back to Psalm 2 now. I will tell of the decree that came by way of the Davidic Covenant, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now those words begotten you have raised a lot of consternation in some people wondering what is he talking about? What does this imply about Jesus that he's begotten of God the Father? In what sense can he be said to be begotten? Is he eternal? or does he have a beginning in time? Now, in the fourth century AD, there was a fa- one of the church fathers was named Arius, and he promoted the idea that God the Son was not eternal. He was the first thing created by God the Father, and that in turn, everything else was created by the Son. This was a, this theological perspective was a heresy. It was called Arianism. And at the First Council of Nicaea in AD 325, church fathers from around the Mediterranean area all came together to address this issue as well as some other things regarding the nature of God the Son. And they came to the conclusion that Arius was a heretic. They condemned his view. And they said that God the Son is co eternal with God the Father. Arius was condemned as a heretic. So, of course, we don't believe in Arianism today. We know that Jesus is God, that he's divine. He has always eternally existed as a member of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, so you're my son. Today I have begotten you. This is not about physical begetting at all. It's rather about kingship. So... I have to go back and understand a little bit of their thinking, uh, ancient Near Eastern concept of kingship and adoption. There was this idea, even in other cultures outside of Israel, that uh, they would worship some sort of deity other than the true Lord God. And that deity would have a king that he would place on the throne. And in doing so, he would be a father and that would be a son unto that deity. That concept is even found, I think, in our Israeli uh, culture. We see it in uh, Psalm 89. And Psalm 89 is going to be built around this Davidic covenant that we've been talking about. So in Psalm 89, verse 3, You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. So obviously it's talking about the Davidic covenant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So that was exactly what was promised out of 2 Samuel chapter 7. But it goes on later in the psalm, and we can go on down to verse 26 He shall cry to me, that is this Davidic son that'll have the throne kingdom. He'll cry to me, You are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. God the Father. <clears throat> Responds, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, <clears throat> in reading Psalms, these are said in, in Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry doesn't always have um, rhyming words. It's more like paralleling ideas. So here we see the idea of the firstborn being paralleled with the highest of the kings of the earth. So a firstborn son was usually the Son born first in a family line, but it also was someone who was preeminent over the others, and that's the the idea here. He's firstborn, not in the sense that uh, he didn't exist before, but he is preeminent, in, particularly in regard to other kings of the earth. He is the one that'll be highest above all else. In that sense, he's a firstborn. <clears throat> now back to Psalm two again, verse seven. You're my son. Today I have begotten you. So if the beginning refers to his kingship, what day does he actually have in mind? Is there some sort of significance to that? Is the beginning If the beginning is about installing the son as king, when is the day he speaks about? In the Apostle Paul's sermon at Pisidian Antioch, recorded for us in Acts 13. He links the fulfillment of this verse to Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Okay, so Acts 13, that's um, when they're going out on the very first missionary journey. They come to a city called Pisidian Antioch, which today would be in the center of western Turkey. And Paul's going to preach in one of the synagogues there. And he's going to actually bring in this Psalm 2 into his sermon. As he begins his sermon, he's going to recount the history of God as dealt through with this nation of Israel and get to the point about David. So Paul in his sermon says, And when he had removed him, as when God had removed Saul and he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Yeshai, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, that is his descendant, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Now those are key words, okay? So the Davidic covenant is a promise that one in David's line is eventually going to be this eternal, this king who has an eternal throne. Reading on, <coughs> Going more further uh, in this uh, sermon that Paul preaches, He goes on to talk about the death and resurrection of Christ. He says in verse 30, But God raised him from the dead, and we bring you the good news that what was promised in the Davidic covenant, what was promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You were my son, today have begotten you. So what is the... uh, day in which uh, he's installed as king it's the time of his resurrection and ascension to the father's right hand so I told you we would go back to verse 6 and I would try to clarify at least make a suggestion as to whether this Zion that was spoken of is a heavenly or an earthly and I'm going to propose that it's a heavenly Mount Zion in which this king is installed that's what the Apostle Paul is trying to bring out in that sermon at Pisidian Antioch that God has fulfilled that Davidic covenant promise by raising Jesus and his ascension to the Father's right hand. And this is right in keeping with Psalm 110, verse 1. That psalm begins with the words, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So Jesus is already installed as king. In the heavenly Mount Zion at the Father's right hand, he has kingly authority, although he hasn't brought the world into subjection to himself yet, that will come later. He's using that kingly authority to build the church. That's why he could say, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, that's the Great Commission. This idea of coming to a heavenly Mount Zion is also picked up in Hebrews chapter 12. The author of Hebrews is wanting to encourage the readers of that epistle to forsake the old covenant, go on to the new covenant. That old covenant began at Mount Sinai. It was a terrifying scene of of thunder and earthquakes and lightning and dark skies. It was very foreboding. It was not inviting. He says, you come to the place of the new covenant. And he describes that for them here in the Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. You come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now this new covenant, this, excuse me, this new Jerusalem still awaits us. That will come about in the new creation as Uh, revelation chapters 21 and 22 uh, make clear but that's what we've come to as being members of this new covenant we have to to look forward to this new jerusalem this heavenly jerusalem and that's where christ has already been installed as king well if verse 7 is telling us that the fulfillment of the davidic covenant comes with jesus being installed in the heavenly zion as king, then what about the, where is his kingdom? And the next verse answers that question. Ask of me, the father invites the son, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. God the father promises God the son the right to rule as king over the world. Now, when God promised a land to Abraham, he promised him a land from the river of Egypt to the Euphrates River here a king is being promised something far beyond the uh, Euphrates River even to the the ends of the, the earth psalm 72 is a psalm that's going to give us a picture of that king and that kingdom that will come it's the mess, what we call a messianic psalm which we see the sun's rule over the nations Read just a few verses from that. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound, to the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river, that is the Euphrates River, to the ends of the earth. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. So here we have depicted for us this kingdom that the son is going to rule over. It will be a universal kingdom, in which all kings will fall down before him. All nations will serve him, and it will be far beyond the Euphrates River. So saith Psalm seventy-two. But when will the son's rule over the nations formally begin? Well, if we go on in Psalm 72, it answers that question for us. Verse 9 of Psalm 2. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Those words are quoted in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 15 in regard to Christ's second coming. So we see now in verse 7, He is inaugurated as king on the heavenly Mount Zion. His kingdom will... His inheritance is all the nations. He'll rule over uh, all the world. And verse 9 is telling us that to expect this in the following, the second coming of Christ. So here's those words uh, from Revelation 19, where we see the second coming described. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. That's the words from Psalm 2. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. So throughout history, God is patiently allowing these rebellious nations to carry on, and, and we see sin and wickedness abounding. But there'll come a time when God's going to put a stop to all of it by the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second coming. <clears throat> now we go on to the final quadrant of the Psalm, verses 10 through 12. Where we see God's exhortation for those in rebellion. They obviously cannot win. and God's going to give them a little counsel here. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. In other words, Accept correction. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling the idea of serving the Lord uh, actually carries the connotation of worship so it's to worship the Lord with fear that is giving him or having the fear of the Lord which is a reverence for him and uh, a, a sense of obligation and submission to him rejoice with trembling that is in the worship of him rejoice but in trembling knowing that you're a accountable to him and who he is verse 12 kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled now that strikes probably modern day readers a little strange these words kiss the son what in the world you know is that talking about well we have to understand something about the ancient near eastern concept of obeisance Uh, I'm showing you here on the screen a part of or a glimpse of an obelisk that's now in the British Museum in London and on this scene we see uh, someone that's bowing down before a king. That king is uh, Shamanetzor III of Assyria and the one bowing down is King Jehu of Israel. He's kissing the ground or about to kiss his feet. It's a he's bringing tribute because now he's going to be you know, subservient to King Shalmaneser III. And so he's having to give him his loyalty and he's bowing in submission before him. And that commemorates occasion in 841 BC. So you can go to London, the British Museum, to see that if you want to. It's kind of interesting. But the idea of this uh, kissing to show one's uh, loyalty and submission unto is even reflected in the Old Testament. um, Samuel's anointing of Saul as king. This is 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1. Samuel took a flask of oil and he poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. So at that time where he's being anointed as king, that was an appropriate moment that he would kiss him. And it, that was a way of him showing his respect for him as king, that he would be loyal and subject to him. So that's the idea when we come back here to Psalm 2 and verse 12. Kiss the son would be to um, bow in uh, be uh, submission to him, to be uh, loyal unto him while you have the opportunity. And the whole psalm ends with the, the last line, blessed are all who take refuge in him. So in, I guess, being submitting oneself unto the Son and taking refuge in him, there's many of the, the psalms pick up this idea about taking refuge in the Lord. Psalm 34, 22 says, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. There's a place that we can go to, a place of refuge. It's in the Lord. We do that when we come to the Lord Jesus in faith. And having done so, we will not be condemned. Psalm 2 boils down to a simple message. It is wise to submit to Messiah Jesus, because God has decreed that he will put down all rule, all rebellion, and he will rule the world. That's what Psalm 2 is trying to tell us. As exciting as these truths are in Psalm 2, it all could be rather dry and academic if we don't reflect on how this touches on our personal lives. I have three things I'd like to, to point out. First, this psalm should be of great encouragement to those of us who are Christians And we're concerned about how we perceive the world spinning into chaos and in utter revolt against our God. Those participants in the great rebellion are not going to succeed. Jesus is the victor, and we are on the winning side. Our God is in control, so let us not give up. Let us not be in despair. Rather, let us heed the words of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Second, if you're here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus as your personal Savior, you need to realize that you are part of the great rebellion. His words call upon you to kiss the Son, to humbly submit to Him, and to finding refuge in him you cannot save yourself only the Lord can do that and he has made the way possible for that by dying for your sins on the cross that's how much God loves you the debt that you owed to God for the sins that you've committed Jesus has paid for at the cross God now God now offers you forgiveness and eternal life if you will place your trust in Christ, in Christ alone as your Savior. I urge you not to leave here today without doing that. It will determine where you spend eternity. Third and finally, for those of us who are Christians and we've already taken refuge in the kingly, God's Kingly Son, we need to be asking ourselves if there's any way in which we are rebelling against Him. You know, it's very easy to drift away from the Lord, to let our hearts grow cold, to take, retake the throne of our life, we might say. In keeping with Psalm 2, Jesus is the king par excellence. But the question is, is Jesus truly your king? Is there anything in your life that's holding you back from being a faithful disciple, totally surrendered to you? Allow me, if I may, to prompt your introspection with a few questions. Is there any bitterness in your life toward God, whereby you feel that he's dealt you some sort of a raw deal? Maybe you've been misjudging God. Is there any unforgiveness in your life toward another person? If there is, that will block you from experiencing God's best until you do something to resolve it. Is there any sin in your life that you're having trouble letting go of? Is this a case of stubborn rebellion against God? Or is it a case of feeling powerless to do anything about it? Now, if it's the latter case, let me reassure you that our staff and our elders here at Bethel are available to help you work through this and get your life back on track. But the point is that Jesus is God's designated, inaugurated king destined to come again and to rule the world. Let those of us who are here at Bethel Bible Church be found faithfully waiting for him, eager to be his most loyal subjects. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you this morning that Psalm 2 brings us a powerful message right here in the onset of the Hebrew Psalter that though the nations rage in rebellion against you that's not going to succeed you've already determined that you're going to you've set your king on a heavenly Mount Zion he cannot be unthroned you've promised to that he would have an eternal throne kingdom his inheritance would be all the nations of the world And at your second coming, Lord Jesus, we do believe that you're coming again, that you're going to turn things around. I pray for all of us here this morning that until that glorious day happens, we would be found faithfully day by day worshiping you, submitting to you, and allowing you to be the Lord of our life. Thank you for what you've spoken to us this morning. May the Spirit of God apply it to our lives, we pray in Jesus' precious and wonderful name.